The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hockey Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And today I'm so excited because we have with us here none other than the Professor Emeritus from Landmark College, who's really going to enlighten us about a lot of different aspects of the brain, Ken Gobo. Ken, welcome to Different Brains. Thanks for having me on, Hacky. Why don't you introduce yourself properly? Okay. Um, I am a, a professor, professor Emeritus of uh, Psychology at Landmark College, and Landmark College is a small um, college in Putney, Vermont. And uh, we have about 400 students, and all our students have learning differences. Uh, we're a school. Our mission is uh, to get people to think differently about education. Our students learn differently, so we teach differently. Taught psychology there for geez, about 30 years. The college is about 35 years old. Um, have a lot of students with dyslexia, ADHD, uh, autism. Uh, autism. And um, being there with my students has, has been really ins inspiring. I retired from teaching a year ago, well, last May, that's yeah, almost a year now. Uh, but I'm still on the uh, steering committee for our, our neurodiversity committee, and I still do research and writing. So I'm still involved, and I try to stay in touch with what's going on at Landmark. How'd you get into that? Into Landmark? How did you get into uh, doing what you do? Well, um, I, I was working at another college on the counseling staff at New England College in Henniker, New Hampshire. And I heard about this new school, Landmark College. And, um, you know, I had a lot of students who were really intelligent, bright people, but, but they, had, they really struggled in school. Um, and at that time... 30 something years ago, I didn't know much about learning disabilities or, or dyslexia. And um, I heard about this college, Landmark College, and I said, wow, I, I wanna hear what they're doing. So I called them up and asked, asked them about their mission and about their work. And um, we talked, we had, we had a, a great long talk with uh, Carolyn Oliver and Jim Oliver. Jim is the first president and founder, one of the founders of, of the college. At the end of our, our conversation, they said, why don't you come over here and work for us? You know, I said, no, 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 I can't do that. I'm, I'm invested in what New England College is doing. But they kept working on me over the next couple of years. And eventually I went over there and um, I taught, I taught uh, psychology there for many, many years and, and learned a great deal uh, from my students and culminated, I guess, in the writing of the book. What is the name of the book? The name of the book is um, Dyslexia and Creativity, Diverse Minds. It's published by Cambridge Scholars Press. And you can go on Google Books and, and read a good chunk of it and see a picture of the, see a good, see a picture of the cover or go to the uh, Cambridge Scholars Pre uh, Publishing website and, and see the book and get some information about the book. And tell us about and the book. The book is about connections between creativity between dyslexia and creativity. Um, you know, in my teaching, I found that many of my students 
who, when I first started teaching, most of them were um, dyslexic. And uh, many of them had different ways of understanding the concepts in psychology that I was teaching. Some of them would develop visual organizers. A lot of them would take their own experience and take their experience and apply it to uh, the psychological concepts that we were talking about. Um, the successful ones were, were very persistent, very determined, uh, hard workers. Um, and I, and I, I decided to pursue this topic of um, creativity and, and dyslexia and connections between the two things. And, and the thing that really spurred me on was hearing about Robert Rauschenberg getting a, um, an award from the lab school in Washington. Um, and, and Rauschenberg was diagnosed as an adult. And, and the, the book is made up of five uh, short biographies of art, three artists and two writers. All of them were diagnosed with dyslexia as adults. Um, when they were kids um, in the 50s, and 60s, most people didn't know about dyslexia and they saw these folks as kind of non-compliant or lazy. Um, but all of them have come to talk about their dyslexia and the, the role that it plays or came to play in their creative process. Um, so I, I, I studied the lives of these two writers and three artists and uh, looked for themes and uh, connections between their uh, learning difficulty and their um, creative process. And each one was different, or was there any were there any common themes you discovered? There were there were common themes. Every each of them were different. Um, each of them were affected by their dyslexia in different ways. But there were some some uh, common themes. Uh, common themes were you know I. I kind of led me to the itch and niche uh, theory of creativity. Um, all of them would hit a point where they were kind of feeling kind of out of sorts or out of kilter or, you know, they had an itch that was hard to scratch. And a lot of them would scratch that itch by thinking out of the box and trying new things. Um, and all of them, I think, found success because of support from their someone in their family or their families or groups of close friends. And they all had uh, teachers that encouraged them. So there's that itch to try something new, support uh, from an environment that allows them to try new things and have the confidence to try new things. And for all of them, persistence and hard work. Now, it's so interesting because our society as a whole really doesn't want you to think outside of the box, doesn't want you to be different, wants everything the same. I think that's true, but I think we're living in a time right now where we're going to need some out-of-the-box thinking to get through some of the difficulties all of us are living with um, in these times of uh, coronavirus and social distancing and looking for solutions. We, we need some out-of-the-box thinkers. Absolutely. I remember when I was interviewing Professor Matthew Schneps, who's dyslexic. He's an astro I know Dr. Schneps, oh, the astrophysicist. Yes, the astrophysicist. So a couple of years back, so I was interviewing him, and he interrupted me. And he said, you know, thanks for the nice introduction, but you have it wrong. 
And I said, well, straighten me out. He said, you said that I'm doing these things despite my dyslexia. And I'm telling you, I'm able to do these things precisely because of my dyslexia. And there was such an example to me of finding your niche in this world. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Schnetz has done some great work in, in sort of uh, using technology to help young people with dyslexia sort of um, tackle their reading and um, you know, their, their receptive and expressive language difficulties. And, you know, we have machines that read for us now. We have machines that we can talk to and will write for us now. And a lot of this, a lot of the technology has really uh, shifted the experience of people with autism, people with attention difficulties, uh, and people with language processing difficulties. Um, in fact, one of the things I'm very interested in, which is kind of the thing that underpins what you do at, at different brains is this idea of neurodiversity and, and the emergence of a, a neurodivergent culture. And I, I think that the uh, availability of personal technology has enabled a lot of people who, who didn't really like to communicate face-to-face -to, -face, uh, to communicate via personal technology. Um, and there's a whole culture that is that is growing uh, because of that technology, and and it's allowing people to connect, and people to talk about their differences, and people to realize that their differences are are part of who they are. That they're not broken; they don't need to be fixed. Those differences, like their dyslexia or their autism. Um, it's part of their personality and it's in a sense part of their power and part of their ability. I'm not romanticizing it. I mean, it, it can be very difficult and very, very frustrating, but it affords positive things as well. And our goal, and I like this in the landmark mission statement, maximizing potential. Whatever that individual's potential is, let's maximize it. Mm -hmm. Tell us about Landmark College, and I can see from this discussion why you gravitated there, but tell us about their mission and what you found when you got there. Well, when I got there, I found a very young college uh, with, you know, I, I was at like 38. I was the old man there. Uh, <laughs> Jim Oliver, I think, is, was maybe two years old. The president was maybe a year or two older than me. Um and um, a lot of enthusiasm, readiness to try new things. Um, some people thought, you know, starting a college in, you know, 35 years ago, it was not a great environment for higher education. And, you know, a lot of people thought it was crazy. And maybe in some sense it was, but it was a chance to try new things. It was a chance to do what I liked to do together with my students. Um, at first, we had a lot of almost all of our students were dyslexic. Um, and the model we used for teaching, which included micro-uniting, you know, breaking things down into bite-sized digestible uh, pieces, um, helping students to identify the main idea, um, things like that uh, worked, worked very well. And then uh, maybe like uh, four or five years into it, we started to get a wave of, um, students with attention difficulties. 
Um, and we had to make some adjustments in, in teaching them. And of course, we had a lot of students with attention difficulties who had language processing difficulties and students with language processing difficulties who had attention problems. Um, and then maybe five years ago, six years ago, we started to get another wave of autistic students. Um, and, and all these students uh, bring strengths. You know, the challenge, uh, sometimes it wasn't a great challenge and sometimes it was, um, was to find the thing the student was passionate about and find the student's strength. I think every student, um, as a guy named uh, Robert Brooks, a psychologist from, from Boston always says, every, every student has an island of competence. You just have to find that one thing that they're good at and build on it. And this so, is the unfortunate thing about society. Uh, education in general, the educational establishment and employment, you really don't get exposed to different things to find out what you like and you don't like. That's why I'm very big on internships and shadowing and different things. And how does Landmark do it? We do have we do have internships. At first, we were a um, we only granted associates degrees. And many many of our our students would come to us for a short period of time, get their skills up to par, and then they would transfer. But over the years, we've developed uh, bachelor's degree programs and art and, um, and um, psychology and, and a few other areas. Um, and we do have internships. We try to place the students in internships. Um, we have interns that work at our Center for Neurodiversity. Uh, we have uh, interns that go out to you know, insurance companies, computer companies. Uh, and it, it, it's a learning experience for them. But, you know, it's also an interesting learning experience for the for the employers too, or the potential employers. Um, some of them are are you know they're not shocked but surprised at some of the skills and abilities some of the students bring with them. You know, the, the creativity. Uh, some of them have some of the autistic students have remarkable memories and can follow these complicated computer protocols, which I could never even get through the first eighteen steps. Never mind how many steps there will be. But we do, we do things with internships and, um, and, and that kind of thing. And I found in teaching psychology, you know, and teaching, teaching things like child development, I like to get them out into daycare centers and elementary schools to, to see uh, and work with young kids. What's been the biggest challenge at Landmark College? Biggest challenge? Hmm. I don't know. It's um, hard to say. Uh, some some young people struggle. You know, some young people have have a hard time getting in the groove of of education. Uh, sometimes they get distracted by things that really have nothing to do with education. Uh, those, those things are those things are challenging. Um, it's it's hard it's hard for me to see a really um, really bright individual uh, not be able to complete their studies for, for any reason. And then, you know, that's offset by the, by the many great graduation speeches that, that we hear as well. Um, yeah, to, to always, you know, I'm always looking to find the way to get through or to, to reach the student that, that, I, that, you know, just didn't seem motivated or didn't seem curious you know, to try to find the, the thing that will spark 
spark their interest. And isn't it funny when we talk about these things, we think about it with this specific population, but that's very generic <laughs> throughout everything. And I remember when I was writing my Asperger Tools book about Asperger's autism and neurodiversity, that Dr. Lori Butts, who was the outgoing president of Florida Psychological Association, she's also an attorney. She's on our board now at Different Brains. And I have in our little documentary said, I, I, I'm paraphrasing. I told Hackey he was a moron because he thought he was just writing a book about Asperger's and autism. But all of these things apply to all of us, you see. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, with, when you have learning differences, it's kind of on steroids, isn't it? Well, we, we get out and, and talk to uh, teachers, um, educational administrators a lot. We have, we have a kind of a division called LSERT, Landmark Institute for um, training, Research and Training, Landmark College Institute for Research and Training. We do a lot of outreach, and, and frequently what happens when our LSERT people go out and, and talk about what we do, almost inevitably there's someone in the, in the audience who says, wait a minute, you're just talking about good teaching. Yeah, we, we are. Uh, you know, being having, you know, we train our teachers, we talk about teaching a lot, you know, and sort of being organized, being multimodal, trying to find a lot of different ways to, um, to present the information, you have a lot of different roots to the concepts and a lot of different ways to prove your understanding of the concept. It's like I said to my daughter when she, who has Asperger's, when she graduated Georgia Tech and went to tutor kids uh, over at uh, Cumberland Academy of Georgia, which is for autistic individuals. And I said, well, why are you going to tutor? Why don't you teach and get a real career? And she says, Dad, you still don't get it, do you? Brains are like snowflakes. No two are alike. And I didn't get it then, but I, I get it now. I get it very mm -hmm. well now. And that's where modern technology can also really be helpful. It's amazing to me that the students who get the most individualized attention in many cases are the students in the old-fashioned one-room schoolhouse in rural areas where they're all sitting working on their projects and their computers and the teacher walks around to each of them. What are you working on here? You know, kind of thing. Well, well this, this shift to online learning, which we're seeing all, all around the world now, because the, the buildings and the classrooms are closed, but the, the learning is continuing in the way that you and I are talking right now. Um, at Landmark, we, we all already had platforms. Like we already had a platform that we were working from. And we already had our courses kind of digitized and information for our, the content of our courses accessible to students 24-7 whenever they went to the class the class site. You know, all the assignments were there, all the rubrics that I used to grade were there, all the readings were there, the, the button to push to ask me a question was there. Um, so in a sense, we were kind of not totally ready, but kind of ready to go a month ago when, when we had to go online. Um, and, and I'm not doing it now, but I, I've been following many of my colleagues uh, and friends who, who are shifting over to 100% online teaching. 
And it was really something to see. You know, we took a week of the spring break, and then we added an extra week for all the teachers. And we have we have a big faculty. It's a very labor-intensive way of teaching that we do. But we have a large faculty, and it was just all of them breaking into teams with the people who were really good at online teaching, working with the people who were needed a little help and a little support. And then we all got then then they all got ready to go and they've all been teaching online for for a few weeks now. Uh, but one of the things like we know some kids are going to some young people are going to flourish online and some are going to struggle. And and a lot of them need the face to face contact. Uh, and what our president, Peter Eden, really, really bright guy who's, who's been a good leader in this whole process, uh, and, and Gail um, Gibson-Sheffield, the academic vice president, put together was a system by which every student has an online advisor. And every day, Monday through Friday, that online advisor checks in with the student. How's the math course? How's the psych course? How's the economics course? You stuck anywhere? Do you need? Do you need? Is there something you don't understand? Do we need to talk to to Dr. Smith about this economics test that's coming? So every day somebody checks in with every student, and that's you know that kind of support in the in the dyslexia and creativity book. That that kind of support usually then it came from family or it came from friends, or there was one teacher that um, that kind of held the person up and got them through. I know you, you may have read some work by uh, John Irving, uh, The World According to Garp, or Sucker House Rules, or any, he's had quite a few successful books. Well, um, for him, it was his wrestling coach, uh, a guy named, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Oh, Ted Seabrook, Coach Seabrook was his wrestling coach, and uh, he his uh, his father was a uh, uh, Irving's father was a faculty member at Exeter, which is a very competitive uh, prep school in sure. And uh, so he got to go to uh, Exeter for free, but he struggled, you know, because he had has severe dyslexia, and. Um, but his his um, his wrestling coach just taught him about hard work and doing things over and over until you got them right and writing and rewriting and um, so you know you never know where that support is going to come from but it always takes somebody to check in. You need that pat on the back, that encouragement. Mm -hmm. Tell our audience what's going on at the Center for Neurodiversity. Sure. Um, we have at, um, at Landmark, we have a lot of kind of diversity centers. We have a, um, a center for African-American uh, students and a center for um, LGBT students and um, a women's center. Um, but we also, about, about four years ago, uh, set up a center for neurodiversity. And um, Solvegi Shmulski is the uh, director of that center. Um, and, and we've got research projects, internships, connections with um, 
businesses for internship, you know, internships and businesses and, and recruiting upon graduation. Uh, so we also have a steering committee with uh, people, with um, neurodivergent people on adults who've graduated college, professionals, uh, neurodivergent people on the steering committee. Uh, when we get into doing research, we sort of consult with the neurodivergent population about the research, about what they think would be useful. We just don't, as researchers, decide, oh, I think I want to study this. You know? um, we, we consult with them about what they think will be helpful. We try to do things to uh, recognize the emerging neurodivergent culture. We have speakers. Uh, come onto campus, people like um, Lydia Brown, I don't know if you know of, of their work, uh, Lydia X. Brown, uh, Temple Grandin has come to visit us. Uh, John Elder Robeson is an advisor to the neurodiversity. He's the author of Look Me in the Eye. He's great. Uh, yeah, he, he lives nearby us. So he, he comes and visits us just about once a month. You know, Dr. Rick Rader down in Chattanooga, who's a MD, a psychologist, a Formula 5 mechanic. I don't know if you've ever run into him. He's at no, no. many of the conferences. He's absolutely brilliant. And uh, he's an MD and a psychologist, and, but anthropology is like his big thing. And uh, one time I was giving a keynote on neurodiversity, and he came up to me afterwards. He goes, Hacky, all you're talking about is anthropology. They're just differences. People's brains are different, you know, kind of thing. And now neurodiversity, thankfully, is coming into the American lexicon and the world lexicon as well. Yeah, we're, we're probably preaching to the choir, but there's, you know, there's no one normal brain. And neurodiversity, you know, like biodiversity brings kind of richness to the landscape. And, you know, you go into the into the, you know, I spend a lot of time in Central America and South America. You go into the jungle in, in Central America and you see all different kinds of birds and animals and plants and flowers. You know, that biodiversity just, you know, it just makes it makes the world a wonderful place. And, you know, this, the different kinds of brains give us many, many opportunities that we wouldn't have if we thought there was just one kind of correct or normal brain, you know. To our audience who might be interested in Landmark College, okay, how do they get more information? Well, we we um, you know we have a website, of course. They can they can Google Landmark College and go to our website and and uh, talk to people in our admissions office. Um, we are we are we have summer sessions. We are either going to if we can run them in face to face, we will. If we can't, we'll run them online. We we were having we have like two planning tracks going for summer and fall. Um, if it's safe for our students to be together on campus, we're going we're gonna to try and go ahead and, and offer face-to-face -face courses. And if it's not time yet for them to be on campus, we're going to keep doing what we're doing right now and teaching uh, virtually. And we're good at teaching virtually. We know what our students need. <laughs> well, sounds like you sure know what you're doing. How can people learn more about you? Um, you can read my book, uh, Dyslexia and Creativity, Diverse Minds, uh, Cambridge Scholars Publishing. 
can go to their to their uh, website or go to Google Books and put in dyslexia and creativity, diverse minds, and probably see a few chapters right there online. Um, or um, yeah, that's probably the best way to learn about me. I've, I've poured a lot into that over the last couple of years. What's one thing you learned while writing about creative minds with dyslexia? One of the salient things I took away from writing this book is that each of the writers and artists whose lives were covered in the book, they were their creative processes were very much influenced by their dyslexia. And for each one of them, persistence and hard work was an important thing. They got up every day and they did what they had to do. They didn't reinvent the wheel every day. They just got up and kept working hard. Thank you so much for being with us here at Different Brains. So great to hang out with you, Ken. Yeah, yeah, it was great to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. We'll do it again. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.